ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today. In a moment, you'll hear about a hay run that's being organised to help out some farmers in our state who are struggling a bit at the moment. And the latest on a significant change flagged for a widely used insecticide. We're currently proposing uh, a regulatory decision that would see by far the majority of uses removed from labels. Uh, And in some cases, we'd be looking to cancel 11 products and six active constituents. You'll hear more about that in just a moment. But first today, a group of farmers from the mid-north have come together to help their mates down the road. Those struggling around Oruru with a combination of low rainfall and poor stock prices. Next week, a convoy of trucks loaded with feed will head to the region, organised by local ag bureaus around Georgetown and Laura. The initiative is called Share Our Stock Feed, or SOS, and it'll drop off hay and grain, as well as provide a barbecue for those in the region. Gladstone farmer Andrew Kiddo has been helping to organise the hay run. He says it's not the first time they've been able to help out their neighbours. Well, in 2020, we had, were approached by some people from Iru that were experiencing dry conditions up there. And the Laura Ag Bureau back then thought we'd come up with an idea of bailing up barley straw behind the headers. Uh, that was pretty good at the time, coming straight out the back of the header. And so we donated... Uh, 1,500 bales to several growers, lots of growers up around Oru in 2020 and we called it Share Our Stock Feed. So that's where the SOS comes from. How bad is it again around the Oru region at the moment? Well, if uh, you looked at the weather station at the moment, you'd probably think it's not too bad because they've just had a big rain up there. But it's been very patchy, um, and up until now, it's been some very poor rainfall figures this season, and uh, so the feed isn't really good quality. And they've got ground cover, but they're all you know running stock on them, and it's, they're worried about what's going to happen if it doesn't rain, and uh, the feed isn't really good quality at the moment because the rain that's Come is going to probably downgrade that a little bit at the moment, and throw in low stock prices as well. It's uh, be quite expensive to be to be feeding sheep and, and not getting anything for them. Yeah, so it's a perfect combination of the low stock prices and low feed quality, and high feed prices for grain and hay this year. So, uh, and also the um, trying to move stock on when they're not up to the correct weights that they want to process them at the abattoirs, so they're having to hold them a bit longer. So, Andrew, tell us about you, you've got the, um, the the convoy, the the the, uh, the hay run coming up um, very soon. Tell us about uh, what's going to be uh, happening uh, in a, in a bit over a week's time. So, uh, about a month ago, we thought, right, we're going to do this again. So, we um, approached growers around the local area, which is uh, mainly the Law Ag Bureau 
people, and that's people from Dolnair up to Rabra in that group. And we asked them if they wanted to do to or have some paddocks available to bale up straw again. So we've had been successful in getting about 500 bales organised. And so next Tuesday on the 19th, we're going to gather all of the hay and load it onto trucks. And then on the Wednesday, we're going to take it up to Oruru on about, I think there'll be about 17 truckloads and also a couple of truckloads or road train loads of donated screenings as well, that being lentil screenings and wheat and barley screenings from some grain companies, which is really good. And I believe, obviously, everyone is donating their time and equipment as well with this, uh, Andrew? Yes. So uh, the main cost to something like this is fuel. It doesn't come cheap running machinery and running trucks and... uh, yeah, that's our biggest cost is, is getting fuel up there, the, the bailing. That's all, all of it's been done voluntary so far. Uh, when we did it in 2020, we had 1,500 bales. This time we're talking about 500 bales. But back then there were about 54 growers and um, involved, and or 54 people involved, and an estimated 600 man-hours put into that event. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty significant contribution besides just the money side of things to go paying for repairs and paying for the fuel to get the trucks up there and unloading and all the other organising that goes with it. And I guess it's, you know, it's it's close to Christmas and that kind of thing as well. It's an issue that these Oruru farmers have, have seen before, not being able to, uh, to, to get enough feed out for the sheep. Is it also about just uniting the community um, as well and, and, and the region? Yes, it's it's a really big part of what we're trying to do. It's not just about donating and looking after the sheep, but it's about creating a bit of mateship and unity with uh, those further north of us that are coming under challenging times. And uh, yeah, when from the experience from the last time when the trucks got up there and went out and delivered it to the farmers or the people out on the mainly station people and when they got out there and started talking to them after they unloaded it, uh, a lot of them ended up with a lump in their throat and it's the lump in the throat that makes you realise what you're doing is well worth it. If anyone, you know, if they've got a lump in their throat listening to something like this and want to contribute, maybe hop on the Facebook page and have search for SOS Share Our Stock Feed. There's a GoFundMe page set up there and they can contribute through that and find out a bit more information. That's Gladstone farmer Andrew Kitto speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And you can find out more about the Hay Run or donate at the SOS Share Our Stock Feed Facebook page. Well, a popular insecticide used across Australia could be banned in a proposal by the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. Australia's chemical regulator has proposed to change the use of chemical chlorpyrifos over concerns around human health, environmental safety and trade risks. Acting CEO Dr Melissa McEwen says the regulator would like to see the insecticide phased out over 12 months. Chlorpyrifos, which is a broad-spectrum insecticide, which is used in horticulture, broadacre farming and to deal with termites. We're currently proposing uh, a regulatory decision that would see by far the majority of uses removed from labels uh, and in some cases 
uh, we'd be looking to cancel 11 products and six active constituents. Okay, so when you say change the the usage, so can you put that into sort of layman's terms of what that sure. means? Sure. So when um, the labels for uh, and usage patterns that are allowed can mean all sorts of things. So um, chlorpyrifos, for example, has an enormous range of different kinds of uses, whether it's for treatments for certain kinds of beetles, for using for termites. So a lot of the use that it, a lot of the things that it's used for, particularly in horticulture for use on, you know, in in dealing with particularly beetles in uh, many areas will be removed. Um, There are only really broadly um, six uses that we'd retain, which are very kind of limited types of uses. So one is around cattle ear tags to prevent fleas and other bugs, impregnated banana bags, so bags that you put bananas in, I guess, Um, ornamental uh, use for protecting from Argentine ants and scarab beetle larvae, termiticides, so termite nests or colonies in walls, urban pests, um, so outdoor control of fleas and ants, and commercial turf protection, so spraying for funnel ants. The majority of other uses, which cover a whole range of horticultural type uses, will be removed. So why is the APVMA looking to do this? So um, we've undertaken a review of chlorpyrifos and its use. We've found uh, that there are challenges for sort of workplace health and safety use. Um, There are environmental impacts from the use of chlorpyrifos and also um, there are some trade risks, residues uh, and so forth that can be in products where chlorpyrifos is used. That would mean that products weren't acceptable overseas. Why now? If this is used quite widely across Australia, what's changed? The use of chlorpyrifos has been under consideration for a long time. In fact, this review started in 1996. During the course of the review, there have been a number of uh, changes to use patterns. So, for example, in 2019, most of the household garden type uses of chlorpyrifos were removed um, because of concerns around safety. And we finally sort of got to the end of point of the review where we have the evidence that says we can't continue to use this um, because it is too great a risk. This is in line with, broadly in line with decisions that have been made by the United States regulator, the EPA there, and other international regulators. So it will bring Australia into line with many of our major trading partners um, around how we use this chemical in Australia. Is it common for that process to take I mean, from 1996 until 2023, <laughs> you know, so, 30 years? There have been uh, there have been some long considerations around chemicals, and some of sometimes that's because uh, science changes. We're responding to new information, but we at the APVMA would be first to admit this has probably been longer than it should have been. And in the middle of this year, Minister Watt issued a ministerial direction for us to complete eight reviews of different chemicals. And so we've acted to follow that direction and get this review finished off. 
So can we expect a, another seven of these types of reviews to be announced in the, the coming weeks and months? Uh, over the next probably six months, there will, we will um, go through the rest of the chemicals that are under review. We have project plans in place and, and we'd be expecting our next announcements possibly late January, early February. Dr Melissa McEwen there from the AVPMA. There's a three-month consultation period open now until March next year. And if you'd like to take part, you can search AV, APVMA consultation online. Now, in addition to this, the APVMA says the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip for fruit with inedible peel is still not permitted. Dimethoate is a chemical which was banned for use as a post-harvest dip for fruit with inedible peel like mangoes and avocados. The chemical regulator recently published an update to its dimethoate suspension in its newsletter saying that it hadn't been revoked, but it is not, uh, sorry, saying that the suspension had been revoked, but it is not that simple. Dr McEwen says it still can't be used as a post-harvest dip. So what it means is that the label variation, so the way that we put into effect a regulatory decision is by changing the approved uses on the label. So we we call that a label variation. So, you know, what, what do people have the ability to market their product for? So each, so the, the, the companies that were using and promoting, uh, were marketing as a post-harvest dip dimethoate, they've all undergone a label variation, which means it's no longer um, an approved use anywhere. So the suspension's no longer needed because the ability to use dimethoate as a post-harvest dip has been taken away and we would not approve that in the future. So there are other uses of dimethoate which are um, able to go ahead. And once the suspension's lifted, that means it's easier for importers and others to, you know, to bring the chemical into Australia to allow it to be used for the uses that are still um, allowed, such as pre-harvest spraying. So I guess the thing for growers to really be aware of or sort of focus on is is using the these chemicals in the way that their labels or, you know, the, the instructions say they're permitted to. Absolutely. Um, the the reason there are instructions on the label is because that ensures the use is safe for the farmer, for the consumer and for the environment. And so it's really important that people follow label instructions. Dr Melissa McEwen there, acting CEO of the APVMA, and she was speaking there in both instances to Michelle Stanley. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Wednesday, let's head to the markets now. John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results. Good afternoon. Numbers were reduced by 2,500 head as agents offered 5,000 lambs and 1,500 sheep. It was the final sale for 2023 with sales commencing in the new year on the 16th of January. Lamb quality was extremely mixed and only fair with a few pens of highly finished lambs on offer. Heavy rain overnight during the morning did not help the presentation. However, good competition from the usual buyers saw young lambs left by $5 to $25 and old lambs by $14 to $30. Light and store lambs sold unchanged to marginally dearer and mutton quality was again good and prices remained firm. 
extremely light young lambs sold from $12 to $40 as light weights range from 19 to 74 Medium weights sold from 56 to 69 as heavyweights range from 110 to $144 and extreme heavyweights 138 to 148 Extremely light older lambs sold from 24 to $60 as lightweights range from 68 to 75 Medium weights sold from 56 to 95 Heavyweights 100 to 158 and extreme heavyweights 138 to a sale top of $180 per head. Hoggets sold from 55 to 110. Medium weight ewes sold from 16 to 60 and heavy ewes ranged from 28 to $60. Rams sold from as low as a dollar to $46 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers remain similar as agents offered 160 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was only fair to average, with the number of parcel cattle from the Coober PD area on offer. The usual trade and local butcher buyers provided good competition, along with steady restock of demand. Pastoral Vila steers sold from 262 to 306 cents, as local calves sold to 286 cents. Pastoral Vila heifers sold from 258 to 308 cents, as local calves sold from 142 to 254 cents. Pastoral yearling steers sold to 258 cents, dairy types to 100, and local cattle 180 to 290 cents a kilo. Dairy yearling heifers sold to 100 cents, pastoral types to 192, and local cattle 200 to 268 cents. Grown steers sold from 210 to 270 cents, as grown heifers ranged from 120 to 220 cents. Cows sold from 120 to 180 cents, as pastoral wean bulls sold from 238 to 302 cents, with heavy bulls of the trade selling from 140 to 202 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you, John. And now to Peter Kerr, because Peter has the uh, results from today's sale at Mount Gambier. Hi, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 13th of December. Numbers fell a little in the last sale of the year as HHR to 2,187 head of live weight and open auction cattle at Mount Gambier today. There was another large field of trade and processor buyers along with feeders and restockers. However, not all of the trade were fully active, with some failing to participate at all. The active buyers picked their way through a mixed-quality offering, which wasn't as good as the previous sale, with pricing being cheaper across all categories this week. Fearless steers to the trade dropped 20 to 30 cents to range from 230 to 260 cents as similar heifers sold from 146 to 228 cents a kilogram. Feeders sought steers to 260 cents and heifers from 157 to 242 as restock orders operate over both sexes from 146 to 290 cents a kilogram. Yearling steers to the trade returned from 225 to 252 cents, similar heifers making from 170 to 236. Feeders were active on steers from 238 to 294 cents and on heifers from 192 to 243. Restockers turned steers back out from 205 to 234 cents and heifers from 196 to 224 cents a kilogram. Grown steers and bullocks sold from 224 to 260 cents to the trade to fall 20 cents. Feeder activity from 228 to 258. Grown heifers ranged from 220 to 238 cents to the trade with feeders operating from also 220 to 243 cents a kilogram. Manufacturing steers sold from 182 to 220 cents to fall 25 cents as bulls made from 185 to 195 cents to drop 15 cents a kilogram. 
cows are yet to be sold at the time of this report. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Peter. And yes, a big thank you and a Merry Christmas to Peter and John for all of their reports for us throughout the year. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now. Jenny Horvath's our forecaster today. Hello, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. Are we all done with the lightning now? We're mostly we're mostly done. There's still a little bit up in the very far northeast of the state for today and possibly still lingering up there for tomorrow, but pretty much I think the risk has mostly gone elsewhere. Very, very slight chance of seeing something very isolated in the lower southeast this afternoon, but I think that's a stretch, and if it was to be something, it definitely wouldn't be severe. Nothing like what we saw mm. yesterday afternoon where we did see the damaging wind gusts move through um, the, the southeast yesterday um, evening, but no, that trough that has been generating that has pretty much moved across into the eastern states. Like I said, we've just got the tail end of it still poking into the northeast of the, of the state for the next couple of days. We still do have that low pressure system um, influencing the weather though. It's currently situ- situated sort of south of Air Peninsula, southwest of um, Kangaroo Island and it's tracking south eastwards towards Mount Gambia. So bit of patchy cloud over the Air Peninsula pushing into the south of the northwest pastoral district there and now moving into our more central districts and then into the southeast later today. So seeing a bit of patchy rainfall around um, with that one at the moment. So just having a bit of a revisit of some of the rainfall we saw in the 24 hours up until 9am this morning. So narrow court picking up just over 10 millimetres there with the thunderstorm action. Um, Cape Jaffa around 8 millimetres. Murray Bridge um, Airport 6 millimetres and about five millimetres at Coonawarra. So it was a little bit um, hit and miss with the with the showers yesterday and um, since 9am today. Haven't seen too much around um, in the gauges there, generally less than a millimetre with this patchy band moving through. So not too much in it with this one coming across, but um, we will expect to see those showers around um, in moving into the southeast later today. As we head on into Thursday, that... Um, Low would have moved down near Tasmania. We've got a bit of a trough pushing up later Thursday, early Friday, which might maintain a little bit of shower activity across the southern agricultural area. Not expecting too much with that. And then still remaining in a bit of a broad westerly flow to see us out into the end of the week. High-pressure system near WA starting to move into the bite as we head into the weekend. And showers really drying up as we head into Saturday through there. With all this moisture around, we could see a little bit of patchy fog um, around our West Coast District, maybe south of the Northwest Pastoral District on Thursday. Um, but then things should start to dry up, especially as we head into um, Sunday and our winds are shifting more easterly, even more northeasterly. So a return to a little bit more warmth and maybe some more average temperatures and above average temperatures in the north through there. And by Sunday afternoon, potentially starting to see some thunderstorm activity on the Western Australian border there, starting to see the next of our systems coming through. A little bit of uncertainty with that one's timing early next week. So showers and thunderstorms are starting to move across more broadly across the central and eastern parts on Sunday and Monday and really starting to dry up back again by next Wednesday. But we'll watch the timing of that one. And at this stage, not looking nowhere near as severe as what we have been experienced. But things have been a bit unsettled, so it's definitely a bit of a, a watch this space for early next week but indications are not not as vigorous as this this system that we've just seen go through Selena 
And just having a quick look at some of the cumulative rainfall totals that we are expecting up until Sunday. So after this sort of band moves through, there's not too much around. So generally less than a couple of millimetres about the agricultural areas, West Coast District, and um, and then on Sunday pushing into the western parts of the Northwest Pastoral District. We could cumulative over those few days, see a little bit more around our southern coasts and ranges, maybe pushing up to around two to five millimetres. So not expecting anything too significant on the on the near forecast there, Selena. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow for the Upper Western District, mostly sunny, a medium chance of showers in the northeast, most likely in the afternoon and early evening, near zero chance of rain elsewhere, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm. Uh, overnight temps in the low to mid-20s, daytime temperatures in the mid to high 30s. For the lower western district tomorrow, mostly sunny, slight chance of a shower in the far east early in the morning, near zero chance of rain everywhere else, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the early morning as well. Overnight, it'll get down to between 17 and 22 during the day, up to 31 to 36 degrees. It's half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Now, have you ever had food poisoning? Oh, terrible stuff. Bugs like salmonella, not only can they make you incredibly sick, they can even be fatal in some circumstances. As soon you can hear about some research that's happening right here in South Australia that's created a new way of sanitising food like chicken and eggs to kill those bugs before they ever get to consumers. And do you love cooking with garlic? I love it. Put it in everything. Well, the good news for you garlic lovers, I guess bad news for vampires, is that you can now buy Australian-grown garlic all year round. So when I first started growing garlic, probably more than 90% of all our garlic, 95% even, was actually coming from overseas, predominantly or mainly from China. Australian people always wanted Australian produce because it was grown locally, they trusted it, etc. Yeah, good news. It's always better if you can buy local and you'll hear that story in this half hour as well. But first, here's Matt Coleman with your news headlines. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, two people charged with murdering prominent Adelaide doctor Michael Jung are set to appear in court this afternoon. Last night, officers attended a home at Torrensville where they arrested a 22-year-old man and a 27-year-old woman from Theberton. Police have previously alleged that Dr Jung was assaulted during a home invasion early on Monday morning. The Bureau of Meteorology says the damage reported in Millicent from a storm yesterday is consistent with descriptions from locals of a tornado hitting the town. Trees were uprooted, power lines were torn down and roofs were blown off when strong winds hit the town in the state southeast about 5pm yesterday. Judy forecaster Belinda House says that sort of damage is what happens during a tornado and the Premier says he remains open to calling a Royal Commission into domestic violence in the state. Ahead of a meeting today, Peter Malinowskis and Cabinet ministers will sit down with advocates in the sector who have repeatedly called for a royal commission to be set up after six deaths in recent weeks. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, more than 100 workers at Treasury Wines Barossa Valley operations have walked off the job today, striking for better pay and labour practices. 
Now, the wineries and packaging sites involved produce a number of Australia's best-known wine brands, including Penfolds, Wolf Blast and Grange Hermitage. I spoke with the National Secretary of the United Workers Union, Tim Kennedy, about why these staff have gone on strike. It's 125 workers at um, two sites at Treasury Mines in the Barossa Valley who are on strike for 24 hours today. And the reason they're taking that action today is that they're in a position where they haven't been able to secure cost of living wage increases after a period of time where they took zero wage increase during COVID. And here they are getting the company through that period, uh, the time when the, you know, the wine industry is taking up again with being open to China and the like, and they haven't been recognised. So uh, my understanding is these workers uh, what, took a, a freeze on an, on an increase during COVID. Have they had then since uh, any, any pay increase since that time? They took the freeze during COVID and they're renegotiating that agreement now. And so the wage increases they get now will determine what uh, standard of living they have. And so you know, we have a difference between the offers that have been made from the company, which don't know we near the cost of living situation that they're faced at the moment, and the type of increases uh, that these workers are trying to secure. It's important that there is a, is a fair outcome out of these negotiations. How long have these negotiations been going on for? So what success have you had with Treasury in trying to get... Well, obviously, if you've got workers going on strike, you haven't been able to get there yet. But uh, I mean, has there been some form of negotiation? Uh, are you getting close to, to any resolution? There have been some negotiations ongoing for many months now. Um, the fact that the workers have resolved to take action now shows that progress has not been made. We're coming up to Christmas. Uh, people have pressures on them and we also can't talk forever and so we do need the company to think about it. In October the company had an annual general meeting where you know almost the majority of the uh, shareholders voted against the executive remuneration pay rise which is way out of kilter uh, with the performance of the company in the last couple of years and way out of kilter with the wage increases being offered to the workers and so when your major sh- shareholders are saying they've got a concern about the way management is remunerating itself and then management gives subpar wage offers, uh, there's a problem. And uh, workers don't take this action lightly. It's a difficult thing for them to do. They're not being paid doing this. It shows you the seriousness of the situation that's being faced by the workers out of Treasury Wines at the moment. As Tim Kennedy, the National Secretary for the United Workers Union. Uh, in a statement, a Treasury Wines company spokesperson said, we, and I quote, we understand and appreciate the pressures of the current cost of living, believe our recent offer was substantial and fair, with an 11.5% pay increase over three years, ensuring team members would remain among the highest, some of the highest paid in the industry. This increase is ahead of the average annual wage growth and in line with forecasted CPI over the covered period. The statement goes on to say, we will continue to negotiate with all bargaining representatives, including the proportion of our team at the Barossa Winery and Packaging Facility that is represented by the union to achieve an agreement. And they say there is no impact to the production of our brands. We will have we have detailed plans in place to minimise any impact to customers as a result of the 20-hour work stoppage by the union. That statement from a Treasury Wines spokesperson. It's 24 minutes to one. Well, Australia is one of the 134
four countries that have signed up to a declaration on sustainable agriculture, resilient food systems and climate action at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP28. The declaration recognises that unprecedented adverse climate impacts are increasingly threatening the resilience of agriculture and food systems. And signatories say they'll aim to scale up adaptation and resilience activities to reduce the vulnerability of all farmers, fisher folk and other producers around the world. South Australia's National Farmers Federation President David Jahinki says the declaration is an opportunity for producers to take the lead on conversations around climate change. The declaration essentially says that agriculture does play a part in the broader discussion around climate change and must uh, include agriculture in any discussions. The key part, though, it shouldn't threaten food production. So what we want to do is be acknowledged for the good work that we do with um, our management of our systems, how we carbon cycle through our systems, the fact that we both emit and then also draw down on carbon, and that we have got a role to play in that broader discussion. What we don't want to see by being excluded is people telling us what agriculture should or shouldn't be doing and enforcing changes that will affect our ability to produce food into the future. In practical terms, do you see this declaration having any immediate impacts on agricultural operations in Australia? Well, for the person on the ground, no. This is about setting the policy framework, which is the hard yards of what governments make the decisions on, and then essentially that trickles down into legislation and then that would affect farmers. But what we're trying to do is cut a lot of nonsense off of the past we produce food and at the end of the day that's the building block of what a growing population requires and we can't be cut off at the knees by some idealism that will prevent us from doing our job. Are there any elements within this declaration that you can see having a sort of longer term impact on food or fisheries or forestries in Australia or is it more of a a general sort of declaration of intent? Well it's very much a declaration of intent in the fact that it does set out that agriculture will be included and will be discussed as an industry, as a participant, not as a party that is not included that will have an effect indirectly or in many cases directly on us by legislation that will either prevent us from doing or using cultural activities or even uh, developing technologies that um, won't be permissible purely because Um, there's a different agenda to ours. So in many ways, it sets the framework for us to work towards. It lets us have a seat at the table. But once again, the clear statement that we want farmers out there to acknowledge is that this is about putting ourselves in a position where it doesn't threaten our food production systems. So the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said the declaration will deepen ties with Australia's trading partners, including those countries who have high demands for sustainability credentials for their food and fibre imports. Do you agree with that statement? One of the greatest challenges we've got in agriculture is to demonstrate our sustainability and what we consider as some world-leading practices. Unfortunately, agriculture is usually viewed through the lens of European production systems, which don't take into the account that we have old soils, that we don't have rainforests, that we don't have rivers that flow all year round, and that we do have this pulse of dry, wet, seasonality, uh, droughts and floods, and that we have adapted to those systems and we've created our own way of farming. 
That's National Farmers Federation President David Jahinki there speaking with Fiona Broom. You're with Selena Green on this Wednesday afternoon. Now, have you ever had food poisoning? Certainly not something I think you'd wish on anyone. Well, South Australian researchers hope a new food sanitizer that they're developing can help prevent millions of cases of foodborne disease each year. They say their technology can kill salmonella in seconds if used on foods like chicken and eggs during the manufacturing process. University of Adelaide researcher Dr. Canarina Richter explained how this plasma-based product is created. So we developed an innovative sanitizer based on cold plasma technology. Now, plasma, if, um, if you think about that, is the fourth state of matter. So we have solid, liquid, gas, and if you put more energy into a gas, then you get plasma. It is a very high-energy state of ionized gas and reactive radicals. You can see this, for example, in lightning or in the aurora borealis. So um, it occurs in nature, and we found a way to actually reproduce this in the lab with a plasma generator. Now, we shoot basically this kind of plasma into water and spice up the water with this kind of ionized um, gas and, and the reactive radicals, and they are then entrapped in the water so that uh, we can make the water antibacterial. And then you can take this sanitizer that you've then created in the lab and what put it on onto foods through the manufacturing process? Exactly, yes. So we tested this, um, this water in the lab against different foodborne pathogens, such as Salmonella, Campylobacter and Listeria. So these are the main foodborne pathogens that actually cause um, the biggest problems in Australia. Um, pathogen outbreaks cost around $600 million every year, and they result in over 4 million cases of food poisoning. So obviously um, there are lots of sanitization processes in place in industry uh, to keep our food safe, but sometimes bacteria can adapt and can become resistant to these kind of sanitizers. And this is where um, we have the problem. So this is when outbreaks can happen, um, causing illnesses in people. We can use our uh, plasma-activated water as a sanitizer um, in the same way standard industrial sanitizers are used. So, for example, we can use it as a, as a dip or as a spray for different food products um, to kill bacteria within a couple of seconds. So what type of food products would this be able to be applied to? Because obviously there are some that are a higher risk of carrying these bugs than others. Yes. So if you think about salmonella, first thing that comes to my mind at least is chicken. Mm. So um, we actually tested this on chicken meat and also on eggs. And we found that our sanitizer can kill salmonella within 15 seconds of exposure. Uh, without changing the smell or the taste of the food. So um, our first target, therefore, is uh, the chicken industry and the egg industry. But we are trying to um, find collaborators and industry partners in other sectors as well to apply our new treatment for other food products. That can include any other meat products, or plant-based foods as well, like, you know, the, the Beyond Burger <laughs> and uh, all the legumes or um, washed salads or melons and whatever you can think about. So it has a wide variety of applications. We just need to optimise it for the different uh, food items.
And what sort of testing has gone into ensuring that this is safe for uh, consumption once foods have been treated with this sanitizer? Is it safe? Um, do you know it's safe for people to consume? Yes. So uh, we did testing in the lab. On the one side, we tested the exposure of human cells to our sanitizer, and those cells remained viable. There was no safety concern whatsoever. And when we used the sanitizer on different food products, the smell or the taste also didn't change of the food, meaning that um, our sanitizer is actually very safe to use. We also identified that once we actually treated food with our sanitizer, because our sanitizer is based on radicals, those radicals interact with any kind of bacteria on food immediately. And therefore, they are, the, the radicals are consumed, leaving behind only pure water. And that means the sanitizer doesn't produce any kind of chemical waste or any kind of waste products that are bad for the, for the environment, making it a very environmentally safe and environmentally friendly solution to foodborne pathogens. And you mentioned this before, but this has some pretty big implications because these bugs, uh, they can and do make a lot of people incredibly sick each year. Yes, exactly. About 4.1 million cases of food poisoning are happening every year in Australia, which is an, uh, it's an incredible number. And if you think about the cost, not only for the, like the health costs of people, but also they need to see um, Doctors, they cannot work. It has a huge implication on the whole Australian economy. And, you know, therefore, pathogen outbreaks cost about $600 million every year. And this is something we definitely need to look at and um, make life healthier and better. Aside from use as a food sanitizer, do you see other further uses for this plasma activated water? Are there things outside, you know, the, the food sector where this might? be of use? Yes, indeed. We actually also use it for medical applications. So this is a different recipe of plasma-activated water. It comes from the same uh, device we use to make plasma-activated water, but uh, the recipe is slightly different for human use. And uh, we've been working on that for a couple of years by now, and we're really thrilled to go into the first clinical trials next year for the treatment of diabetic foot ulcers. So we basically use the plasma-activated water as a wound cleanser that can not only kill superbugs in wounds, like in diabetic foot infections, but it also improves wound healing. With our research, we hope that we can not only improve food safety for people in Australia, but also improve health care as well. Dr. Katarina Richter there speaking with me. Uh, Dr. Richter is a future-making fellow from the University of Adelaide's Institute for Photonics and Advanced Sensing. Enjoy a feast of movies for free on ABC iView. From Colin Firth and Geoffrey Rush in The King's Speech. At last, sir, here's your speech. You are on air at six. To Dame Judi Dench in Red Joan. I am not... A spy. Plus Carol, Boy, Empire Records, Burlesque and so many more. A feast of delicious movies all summer long. Bon appétit. Streaming free and ad-free on ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Now, when you're busy doing your Christmas shopping, do you ever buy direct from farms? Well, one farmer in the state's southeast is reminding consumers to think about paddock-to-plate options when doing your shopping this summer. Prime lamb farmer George Beck started selling boxes of lamb meat direct from his farm early this year in response to low sale yard prices. He says thinking about paddock-to-plate options may help farmers out after a tough year. I think uh, that's a really good option. They're able to uh, source some of the best produce in Australia and the world from the limestone coast here. And it's not only us doing this, there are a number of other farms doing the lamb and uh, there's new free-range eggs on the market, there's pork over near Beachport and around. So there are quite a few options to support uh, local farmers with this uh, paddock-to-plate concept. Yes, yeah, so it's like you said, it's not just you. This is something you've seen other farmers uptake in, in over the last year? Yeah, there's been... Uh, quite a few. I follow a couple on Twitter that are, are really quite interesting and um, innovative with some of the ideas they are doing. But definitely uh, that period sort of through August onwards created some uh, price points where a lot of farmers actually are doing a similar thing to us and uh, started looking uh, to cut out the middleman and trim some costs here and there where they could and that seemed like the most obvious one to do. Obviously it's small scale stuff compared to the rest of the number of lambs you need to leave your farm through this time of the year. But it's uh, a starting point and, yeah, it's it's interesting to be part of that supply chain. And uh, everyone that's had them has been pretty happy to have this option in the southeast of buying direct from farmers? It's been really good. The, the feedback's been excellent. Just about every night I receive a message from one of the customers that's cooking something up, it might be shanks or doing something like crumb four quarters or uh, having a go at uh, using all the uh, the cuts of the lamb, but sometimes they wouldn't necessarily buy if they went in purposely to buy something. That's uh, been part of the fun as people have been looking up new recipes and, yeah, really getting into it. And how, just how tough has this year been when it comes to livestock prices for yourself and for some of the other farmers in the region? Yeah, it's... It's been quite tough. The widespread rain we had uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks ago has definitely uh, helped a bit. It's probably raised prices for both lambs and uh, cattle by nearly a dollar a kilogram. So that is certainly helpful, but still a fair way short of where we need to be to uh, be breaking even, really. So we do need to see a fair bit of upside before we're uh, back operating profitably. Prime lamb farmer George Beck. Those that have been in the paddock-to-plate game a little longer have said it's more popular now than ever before. Sue Foria runs Glenlonny Low Lines Beef. She originally started selling direct-to-consumer around eight years ago to diversify her stud. She says while it has been a bit of a slog over the years to get her consumer base, now they're more devoted than ever and her popularity is increasing. Paddock to Plate um, sort of came about through friends of mine who were in the same breeding of cattle and um, he was an ex-butcher. Um, so we started at the farmer's market. So, yeah, so that was about eight years ago. And you were running a stud before, right? What mm-hmm. prompted the decision to, yeah, start selling meat at all yourself direct? Right, well, the stud, I'm still running the stud, but putting animals into the sale yards was not getting um, a really good return on your cattle because they're a smaller breed and people look at them as a bit of a toy. 
So, yeah, I thought, well, the best way to do that was to actually have them butchered in myself and then sell it to the public. So, yeah, it worked really well. And it's been successful over the years? You've been able to find a market? Yes, yeah. Um, I found that the consistency, because we're at the market every Saturday, um, and customers just follow me, which is is fantastic, you know. But it has built up over the years. It was pretty lousy to start with. But once you get your name out there and, and people can rely on you, then it's awesome. So compared to, yes, at the start, a bit of a slow start, but you've noticed in the last couple of months you've been busier than ever, right? I have been, and I, I don't... I don't, can't put my finger on exactly why um, it's picked up, but um, it's doing really, really well Yeah, over the last probably six months, yeah. So you think people are really looking specifically for paddock-to-plate options nowadays? I think as in general, yes. They, they want to know where their food comes from, whether it be organic or not. I'm not organic, but, yeah, I do guarantee grass-fed beef and people are looking for that they want to buy local yeah that's Glen Lonnie beef operator Sue Foria they're speaking with Elsie Adamo and you can read more about this on our website there's some beautiful photos of there on Sue Sue with her cattle it's abc.net.au forward slash rural well good news for you guys who love garlic consumers can now buy Australian garlic all year round reducing the need for cheap imported garlic it's been decades of hard work for farmers of the notoriously difficult to grow crop as Ellie Bradfield reports it's been a lifetime of work I was a young man with black hair and now I'm an old man with white hair so it's taken literally a lifetime so when I first started growing garlic probably more than 90% of all our garlic 95% even was actually coming from overseas predominantly or mainly from China Australian people always wanted Australian produce because it was grown locally they trusted it etc Australian garlic producers CEO Nick Diamantopoulos knew there was a gap in the market but when it came to closing it the list of challenges felt endless. Garlic was being produced in countries where labour was very, very cheap and Australian labour was nowhere near cheap and especially now it's getting more and more and more expensive and so garlic is very labour intensive. So these were all the challenges but the biggest of all challenges I feel was probably the lack of garlic seed, garlic know-how, virus-free garlic varieties having different varieties that work in different areas. Look, I suppose I was just lucky that I was young and probably naive at the time because if you looked at it today, it wouldn't make good commercial sense and the challenge was just huge. It was just a massive task. So when you're young, you're sort of enthusiastic and, you know, take things a little bit lighter. And But it just involved a lot of crop failures, a lot of disasters, a lot of learnings. As an industrial chemist by trade, he was able to bring in different garlic varieties from around the world. Back then it was a lot easier to import nursery stock and get varieties into the country. It's become very, very difficult of late. Slowly we started to grow, you know, crops with very lower yields and then slowly started to, you know, improve those yields and identify different varieties. And here we are today. But, you know, hey, look, it's taken 25, 30 years to get to where we are. While growers experimented and scaled up, Australian garlic paste played a role in filling consumer demand. They were very patient. We were replacing imported garlic very, very slowly. So for 
several months of the year, even though they'd chosen to not put Chinese garlic on the shelves, they still did carry some imported product from, say, Spain and Mexico, Argentina. But by making a garlic paste, we were able to provide an Australian garlic offer at a time of the year when there was no Australian garlic bulbs on the shelf at all. So that sort of helped bridge a gap. Years on, Nick Diamantopoulos says what we've achieved in Australia is pretty unique. Places like the Northern Territory and Queensland, for example, they allow you to harvest garlic around September. So you sort of get early season garlic and then we harvest garlic after that in October, November, say New South Wales, and then we sort of harvest garlic in Victoria around November, December, and then we harvest garlic in Mount Gambia, South Australia, for example, around December, January. The late varieties store very well, and so they sort of close the gap, which incidentally is something that many other countries around the world can't do. We harvest garlic in Australia, fresh garlic, for about six, seven months of the year, you know, because of our diverse climatic conditions, starting from tropical, subtropical, cool climate, whereas overseas, they really have a four-week harvest window because they've just got one little climatic zone. So it's quite interesting, very unique. What we do in Australia, not many other countries can do. We've got over 300 garlic varieties at the moment, and we're sort of commercialising about a dozen of them, and we're still testing lots of other varieties to try to, again, expand the window of fresh garlic coming in all year round. With global warming, you know, we're going to be very careful because things are sort of changing and so we've got to be almost a step ahead of it. So we're almost trialling varieties now that can withstand, for example, more disease resistant, that can tolerate warmer weather, for example, or extremer weather. Um, It's quite, it's never-ending challenges. Queensland is a crucial part of the plan. Andrew Moon of Moon Rocks explains. The Queensland window, and certainly the St George window, is a big cog in that wheel. I mean, without it, it's impossible to supply for 12 months Australian product. Being able to breed a variety that works for us in this area and to the specification needed for the consumer and the chain stores. That's been a big thing. And we plant anywhere from February to through to April and, and harvest in September. Sometimes we've harvested earlier than that in August as well. So just that's a bit seasonal. And then we supply for 12 months. Ellie Bradfield with that report. Now, if you want to read more, you can hop on to abc.net.au forward slash rural to read more on that great story and find many, many more from our ABC Rural team. Hello to Francis from Brighton who's hopped on the text line. Francis says, so happy to hear we can now have Australian garlic. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Francis. And thank you to Angela who called in. Angela's in Adelaide. So she can't get local paddock to play options because she doesn't drive, but believes maybe the increase is in popularity is because of high meat prices in supermarkets. Angela says she hasn't been able to afford to buy lamb or beef for some time. It's pretty pricey. Um, And thank you for your kind comments, Angela. She was um, keen to 
hear perhaps a bit more of the country out. Now, for our regional listeners, you get a bonus half an hour uh, from noon each day. So if you'd like to uh, listen to the full program or listen back to anything you might have missed on the country hour, each day, you can uh, search for our website, South Australian Country Hour. It's on there. Uh, or you can look on the ABC Listen app if you've got that downloaded onto your smartphone or tablet for free. Thanks so much for your company today. It's just going on one o'clock and time for the news. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.